Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. One of the gravest national security threats facing our country is a president who is not informed and who does not have good instincts on national security and who may not always be acting in a manner that's in the best interest of our nation. That's Jeremy Bash. He was chief of staff at the CIA and the Department of Defense under President Obama. I speak with him about the Helsinki summit, Mueller's indictment of 12 Russian intelligence operatives, and what leverage Putin might have over President Trump. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Secret Deodorant. And here's why that makes sense. Strong women are the secret sauce of Stay Tuned. You've heard many of them in our episodes, and there are strong women working behind the scenes on every show. And the folks at Secret know that my listeners are strong women or their friends and family. Secret clinical strength antiperspirant is made for strong women. Let's break it down. Secret is just the name. You can tell anyone about it, and you should. Clinically strong means it's extra good at preventing sweat, twice as good as regular antiperspirant. That's why it's on the top shelf. It's midsummer, and it's a million degrees out, and the world is giving us all plenty to get hot and bothered about. Everyone needs an antiperspirant deodorant that can keep up. But not all of them are made for strong women. So whether you're sweating from the summer heat, from midterm anxiety, or stress over Supreme Court confirmation hearings, give Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant a try. Okay, let's get to your questions. Hey, Preet, this is Joe Veneration in Lexington, Massachusetts. I had a question about all of the stuff that's going on about Mike McFall and Trump's suggesting that maybe he's talked with the Russians about having him turned over for questions. How does that even work? He is a private citizen, and he doesn't have to talk to anybody if he doesn't want to. I mean, are they talking about having to have him arrested? Uh, I'm just not quite sure how all that works. Thanks. Bye. Uh, Joe, thanks for your question. I actually spoke with Ambassador McFall over the weekend, and as you know, he was a guest on this program not that long ago. And, you know, he is naturally unhappy and upset. His family is not happy uh, and is upset because we've never seen a situation before 
where a president would even suggest that a former official, and not just any official, but the United States ambassador to a country, might be open to considering either handing someone over for questioning or maybe even positive about a criminal charge of some sort against someone who served his country as a public servant and as a patriot, even though that happened under a prior administration. It's, it's, it's as close to an abomination as any other thing that a president might consider. And it doesn't sound like putting America first. A couple of points. With respect to the idea that, that President Trump, powerful as he is, as the head of the executive branch, could just pick up an American citizen and hand him over to another country, that's really not going to happen. That really couldn't happen, notwithstanding the power that the president arrogates to himself. And McFaul has acknowledged this. The threat really is not that in violation of law and without going through you know, things that are called MLATs, treaties that we have with other countries, for the obtaining of evidence, um, that's just not going to happen. The problem is, as Ambassador McFaul keeps reciting it, is similar to the problem that another guest, past and future, Bill Browder, has made clear. And that is the problem being able to freely travel around the world. There's this thing called Interpol, which is a repository for, among other things, something called a red notice, which is basically a notification to governments around the world with respect to somebody who, against whom there might be a criminal charge. So that, for example, if there's a notorious murderer in America and he becomes a fugitive and we want to make sure that we bring him back, done through lawful process, the Americans would put a red notice into the Interpol system so that when that person tries to flee and travel in between, let's say, the UK and France, the authorities in France would get an alert because there's a red notice and would and according to the agreements we have between and among countries, uh, might hold that person and then depending on the process that unfolds, deliver that person back to the United States. I mean, it's all complicated and that's a simplification, but that's how it's supposed to work. That system, however, can be abused. And to the extent, you know, Trump's remarks were suggesting that we would allow the Russians, as they have done with Bill Browder and others, that we would allow the Russians to misuse the Interpol system um, and file some spurious criminal charge against Michael McFaul in Russia that would cause him and his family to be detained if they just traveled in the natural and ordinary course, that's worrisome. You know, there have been times when I've had to worry about travel because of a position that has been taken by the government of Turkey, uh, which I've mentioned before, you know, by President Erdogan personally. And you like to think that based on the work that you did in good faith as a public servant in this country, that when other countries start playing politics and start to manipulate actions and activities for their own political gain in their own country, that we're not going to criminalize our own people's conduct. And as far as I know, going back to forever, American presidents uh, respect and uphold the dignity of their prior public servants and don't you know, cave to foreign despots. And through the rhetoric that the president was using, there's some doubt as to how strong he would be in defending American citizens. This next question comes in a tweet from Matthew Bergeron. Hey, Preet Bharara. While I have no doubt a person's clearance can be stripped for pretty much any reason, how is doing so based on criticism of the government not a First Amendment violation? Seems to me to be the epitome of arbitrary and capricious based on speech. Hashtag ask Preet. Thanks for using the hashtag, Matthew. So that's a very good question, and I have a bunch of things to say about it. As you'll hear in the conversation coming up with Jeremy Bash, we spend quite a bit of time talking about the basics of security clearances and how information is classified and the different levels of classification. But because this is the world we live in now, news breaks on a constant basis. 
right after I taped that interview with Jeremy was the news that the president looks like he's considering stripping the security clearances from a number of people, including Jim Comey, Andy McCabe, John Brennan, and some others. Now, as you say, people's security clearances get removed all the time. And generally speaking, when people leave office, they lose their security clearance. I don't believe I any longer have a security clearance. Maybe I do, but I'm not aware of it. I don't expect to have it. I don't expect to be read in on any classified information going forward because I left that, that office. There has been an exception, as maybe you've been reading about and seeing on TV the last few days, for people who are very high up in the intelligence community so that they can give the benefit of their experience and expertise and knowledge to their successors. So it's not something that's supposed to be a benefit to the person who continues to retain a security clearance after they leave office, because why would you do that? The reason we have it and the reason it's been afforded to a lot of people, including folks like James Clapper, who I think has had continuous security clearance at the highest level for multiple decades, it's to allow current officials to read people in who have had those positions before and say, hey, we'd like to get the benefit of your wisdom and how we should have dealt with this issue or this crisis or this phenomenon better. And there are people in the intelligence community who have, as a pro bono matter, on the side while they have other jobs after leaving office, have formed working groups and gotten together and, and done sort of informal commissions. And the only reason they can provide that expertise and wisdom back to the government that used to employ them is to retain some security clearance. So, you know, it's like thumbing yourself in the eye to spite someone else. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. And the second point is, you're absolutely right. There may be a First Amendment challenge. I don't know. There's some lawyers, including the lawyer for Annie McCabe, who has suggested on social media that there's a First Amendment problem here. If you decide to change the policy and decided you wanted to make sure that every former official no longer has a security clearance because that's a national security issue or it's bad policy, and you decide as a blanket matter to do that, you know, maybe that's wise, maybe it's not, but that seems okay. But this is just the most recent manifestation of something this president continues to do in other areas. And that is he singles out only his critics. You know, he singles out only the press outlets that he doesn't like. He singles out only the former officials that he doesn't like and tries to figure out ways to punish them. The, the funny part about all this, to the extent anything here can be funny, is as Jim Comey has made clear through Ben Wittes this week and maybe other outlets, he doesn't even have a security clearance. So, you know, Trump and Sarah Huckabee Sanders have made a big deal of trying to take something away from somebody out of spite and anger and retaliation that they don't even have. So it's egregious combined with comedic, as a lot of things this president does, are. And just to give you a sense of how outlandish it is to decide you want to take some privilege away from people who have criticized you and how unusual that is, somebody we talk about all the time and you hear about all the time, Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor to President Trump, during the campaign, when he was campaigning for Donald Trump and Michael Flynn was at televised campaign rallies, he not only heard but also joined in and directed chants against Obama's preferred successor, Hillary Clinton, chants of lock her up. And even during that time, when he was being incredibly political and using his security clearance as part of his resume to stand up at those rallies and yell completely politicized things like lock her up, no one took away his security clearance. It's just important to remember that there's no real harm that comes to the people whose security clearances are being threatened. They're out of office. The only reason they would need to have it is if someone decided they wanted the benefit of their experience and knowledge. It's a way of making sure that the current government 
has the benefit of other people's brains. The people who are losing out are not John Brennan or Jim Comey or Andy McCabe or James Clapper. It's the rest of us. This next question comes from Twitter from Lisa Trupp. In light of the release of the first Cohen tape, can you clarify how or why it's possible the 150 k paid to Ms. McDougal may represent a campaign finance violation? Thanks for your time. Love the podcast. Thanks for your question. Look, I think it depends on what the facts are. So one way for there to be a campaign finance violation is if you don't report an expenditure that's in connection with your campaign. That's how there's transparency in our election process. So if you spend a lot of money on advertisements, that's supposed to be reported. So ordinarily, a payment like the one that has been reported here between the owner of the National Enquirer and Ms. McDougal to buy her story about an alleged affair with Donald Trump and then kill it, what's known as catch and kill, ordinarily, with no further evidence or connection to the campaign or to President Trump, wouldn't be much of anything, as a legal matter at least. On the other hand, as this now newly released tape suggests, and it's a tape that Michael Cohen, who probably didn't trust Donald Trump and trust Donald Trump's version of events, surreptitiously secretly recorded his client, which is a bizarre thing, and I wouldn't counsel it, and I've never done it, and I would be very angry if someone did it to me, but he did it. That tape seems to suggest that there was some conversation between and among you know, people representing Trump and the people who are responsible for the payment to Ms. McDougal at the National Enquirer. I don't think there's enough information yet, and the tape cuts off, and some of it is unclear. But regardless, I think there's now the beginnings of some evidence to suggest that the Trump campaign itself felt the need for purposes of enhancing his election prospects to coordinate, reimburse, or pay the $150,000 to Ms. McDougal. So that's an example of what a campaign finance violation allegation would look like. Now, on the other hand, if it was not the Trump folks who made the payment, and it really was made by the folks at the National Enquirer, by David Pecker, on behalf of Donald Trump, because it was going to help him in the campaign, and there's a reasonable reason to think that because it came in the weeks before the election, well, then that's an illegal campaign contribution that both exceeds the limit and also wasn't disclosed. So kind of either way you slice it, there's the possibility of a campaign violation, depending on what the motivations were, depending on what people's knowledge was. And if it is a campaign finance violation, then presumably some office will think about whether or not they should prosecute it, whether or not it makes sense and is in the interest of justice. And that office at the moment appears to be the Southern District of New York. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to share some news on a couple of fronts. First, as some of you may know, I have been writing a book. It's really, really hard. <laughs> it's gone very, very slowly. But this past Monday, I finally delivered a draft of the book to my editor at Kanaf. He seemed very happy, and I am very happy. But I've been mostly keeping my head down, basically just doing this podcast and writing that book. And I've been thinking as I mentioned some weeks ago, about the possibility of running for the open seat of Attorney General of the state of New York. And I mentioned that I was unlikely to do it. Politics is not my cup of tea, but I wanted to finish writing the book and sleep on it. I think it's an important job. Public service is incredibly important to me, especially public service in the law and in law enforcement and in upholding the rule of law. But for a variety of reasons, as many may have guessed, given the nature of politics at this moment, the difficulty of running for office in a way that would make me comfortable, even though it's an important job that can have a lot of consequence. I'm not throwing my hat in the ring. 
And I'm not precluding the possibility of doing some other thing in public service, and I hope there are opportunities because it's the, it's the best thing you can do and it's the thing I miss most, but I'm not running for attorney general. All right, so I just wanted to make sure you guys... I mean, look, some people have speculated that a man who grows a beard ain't running for office. Turns out this time that's true. My guest this week is Jeremy Bash. He served as chief of staff at the CIA in the Department of Defense for Leon Panetta under President Obama. In this week with so much news, we talk about Helsinki, Trump and Putin's one-on-one meeting, and the indictment of 12 Russians for their interference in the 2016 election. Plus, Jeremy explains why we shouldn't call it meddling. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Simply Safe. Simply Safe is home security done right. And here's what I love about Simply Safe. They go above and beyond to protect your family. They obsess over the details. Here's an example. Most alarms have a sensor that listens for breaking glass, but sometimes the sensor gets fooled by sounds like dropped plates or a baby crying. So, Simply Safe built a facility to test breaking glass. They ran more than 10,000 simulations until their detection technology could tell a broken plate from a broken window. That's the level of detail Simply Safe puts into everything they do. It's what sets them apart from other security companies. Simply Safe system is designed so you'll never notice it. You never have to think about it. It's that easy and intuitive. There's no contract. They work hard to earn your business. 24-7 monitoring with police and fire dispatch is just $15 a month. It's the best around-the-clock protection you can find. Order your Simply Safe security system today at simplysafe.com/preet. And when you do, Simply Safe will also donate one to a family in need. That's simplysafe.com/preet. simplysafe.com/preet. Jeremy Bash, thanks for being on the show. Great to be here, Preet. So I'm feeling a little bit nostalgic. People may not realize that this whole podcast thing I'm doing started right here in this office building in Washington, D.C. last September when I interviewed in this very space my first guest, Leanne Panetta, which you helped arrange. So thank you for that. My pleasure. He's a great American, and it was a great way to kick off an amazing podcast. That is a double suck up in one sentence, which I, <laughs> wow, that was really good. You've learned a lot from that media training, Jeremy. I will say that I was much more nervous then than now. No offense to you. None taken. But now, you know, I've got this podcast thing down yeah. pretty, pretty well. Nailed so, it. Thanks for joining us. So here's the problem. We are taping this on Monday afternoon, and so many things have happened in the last week that are in your wheelhouse and your expertise as someone who's done so many things in the intelligence community. I don't know what to talk about. Could you first save me the effort of having to describe your bio at length? And could you tell us all the different things you've done, particularly in, in the intel world? Sure. Well, you and I had a chance to work together when you were serving as U.S. attorney. At the time, I was chief of staff to the director of the CIA, Leon Panetta. And after I served there for a couple of years, I went with Secretary Panetta to the Pentagon, where I served as chief of staff to the Department of Defense. 
Uh, my background really was I was a, a lawyer, uh, worked in private practice for a while after 9-11. I went to Capitol Hill, pre where I first met you when you were working for Senator Schumer, and I was serving as chief counsel for the House Intelligence Committee. And that was a time in the mid-2000s, you may remember, when Intel was all the rage. It was on the front pages. It was about the Iraq WMD intelligence failure. It was about the 9-11 commission recommendations, which came out in 2004. It was about enhanced interrogation techniques and about NSA surveillance and all the issues that kind of thrust intelligence onto the front pages for almost the first time since probably Iran-Contra. Right. It's back on the front pages again. It is. <laughs> I'll just say, though, after I finished a federal clerkship after law school, I was going to try my hand at practicing law, but I decided to work on a presidential campaign. This was for Gore in 2000. And at the end of the campaign, even though I was a foreign policy advisor for the campaign, you may recall that the election night ended in kind of a tie. And so I went down to Florida for what was promised to be three days, but it ended up being 36 days. And the recount in Florida went twice to the Supreme Court. And the very first lawsuit I ever filed with my own hands in the Leon County courthouse was the first contest of a presidential election in U.S. history. So after that, Preet, I really How'd could- that go? Who, <laughs> who won that one? We lost that election 5-4. Is that why you hung up your shoes as a practicing lawyer? Yeah, I, 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 I tried for a while, but I knew I wasn't going to be able- It was, it was going to only be downhill from there. Yeah, do you still have nightmares about hanging chads? We've moved on. Okay, really? Yeah. You seem a little tense about this topic. No, I, I mean, think about all the different things that would have happened if the Supreme Court had decided that case in the other- direction. Really? What would have happened? What would have, are you going to do that counterfactual for us? I don't know, but it's it's sometimes interesting to contemplate. It is. So more recent history. Yeah. Lots of things have gone on. I'll tick off a few of them and let's see what you want to talk about. There are too many to cover in the time we have, but over the past weekend, the Carter Page FISA affidavit was released, which is a bit of you know controversial wrangling back and forth between the Democrats and Republicans on the Intel Committee and also just generally in the news. We have President Trump in Helsinki meeting with President Putin alone, then looking like he wasn't standing up for his intel agency and credited Putin more. Then Donald Trump reversed himself and said he meant to say wouldn't when he said would. Then he invited Putin to come to the United States in the fall. We have the business of Michael McFaul, the former ambassador to Russia and a former podcast guest here. Seeming like Trump was open to letting him be interrogated by our adversaries in Russia. We also had the indictment by Special Counsel Mueller's office of 12 military intelligence officers who engaged in all manner of hacking uh, to interfere in the election in favor of Donald Trump. What else we talk about among those varied <laughs> topics? Why don't you pick one and I'll ask some questions. Well, let's start with Helsinki. Preet, we have a foreign policy vis-a-vis Russia that makes no sense. We have a policy that, in essence, embraces Putin, that defers to a large degree on Putin's worldview. You know, for many, many years now, the basic standoff and policy vis-a-vis Russia has been the United States works with allies, works with the posse, works with our partners, principally with NATO, including alliances with the European Union, and Russia tries to break up those alliances. And so what we had in Helsinki was sort of, I think, the culmination of a month of foreign policy decision-making in which the Russian foreign policy objective of breaking up those alliances succeeded. Why do I say that? First, obviously, the month started with the G7 summit in which President Trump, on the way to that summit, said, I want Russia to be part of the G7. And then when, of course, Trump left town and left the meetings with Trudeau and others, he said, in essence, that the alliance was over. That's something that Putin has long wanted to see. 
You also saw the NATO meeting in which the president went there. And although at the end he tried to declare that it was some success, that NATO was stronger, I think everybody who has followed this knows well and understands that, in fact, the alliance has been severely weakened by the attitude that President Trump took. And then, of course, it was capped by the Helsinki summit in which the president said, we have a great relationship with Russia. And when asked point blank by Jonathan Lemire of the AP, you know, who do you believe, your own intelligence services or the Russian intelligence services, he said, I have, quote, confidence in both sides. It's always with the both sides. Exactly. It's the moral equivalence between, in effect, the CIA and the KGB successor organizations, which to a CIA officer, to the intelligence community professional who's out there, you know, working hard to, to protect the country, risking his or her own life, risking the lives of his or her own assets in some very austere, difficult corners of the world. That is about as, as grave as an insult as you can hurl at an intelligence professional. I agree with all of that. But do you have a theory as to why the president keeps seeming to take Putin's side over his own people? It, it doesn't seem to be a way to endear himself to any constituency he has, unlike some other things he does when he blows the whistle. Some people say on the Confederate flag or on immigration or any of those kinds of things. He at least gets some benefit from his, I don't think his base is clamoring for him to be embracing Vladimir Putin. So why is he doing it? Well, I agree. It doesn't make sense. And I started with this, that we have a foreign policy against Russia that makes no sense. I think one idea is that Trump is a, a genius of international relations, the likes of which we haven't seen since Henry Kissinger, and that he has figured out something about international relations that none of us believes or, or understands. Let's just put that to be generous at 2% probability, okay? Then I think there is a small chance worth keeping in the back of our mind, though I kind of discount it, that Vladimir Putin has some no-kidding derogatory information on Donald Trump. Whatever is discussed in the dossier about what happened in the on the midnight shift um, in Moscow, but I'll discount that and just put that at 2%. Are you doing that for argument's sake, or do you really think it's at 2%? I, I'm doing that for argument's sake because I don't know, and I don't know how to credit it, so I'm just going to put it at a very low probability. Okay. In part because the implications of it being true are obviously so stark. But so I think there's a 96% chance that the reason why Donald Trump has taken this very pro-Russia position, pro-Putin position, is because of money, because of the longstanding financial ties that have existed between the Trump organization and people around the Russian government, to include Russian oligarchs. And you know, the Trump organization obviously is a largely a real estate enterprise and then ultimately a branding enterprise, needed capital for expansion. And so they sought cheaper forms of capital, more ready forms of capital. And that was largely coming out of the, the old Soviet Union. And there was a concomitant need on the other side, on the Russian side, where they had to have a place for their capital. So the oligarchs who really took over the Russian state and were able to reap billions of dollars needed to have capital leave the country, in part to ensure that it wouldn't be accessed by a new regime that would come to power and try to seize it, but in part because they needed, in effect, to launder it. And so there was kind of a marriage of interests. And you've seen quotes from people like Eric Trump in which he has said, we got a lot of our money from Russia. Do you think that these entanglements caused Trump to be favorable towards Putin because, A, it's a thank you for all these business opportunities he's gotten, B, insurance policy against it being revealed that there was nefarious activity, as you suggest, potential money laundering, or C, a down payment on having future relationships once he leaves the presidency for him and his family, or is it some combination of those? I weight A and B more. You know, the word leverage is, I think, exactly the right 
word here because leverage has a financial connotation in which Donald Trump is sort of overly leveraged and the person who holds the loans or who could call the loans are people who, in effect, Putin control. Um, and that gives them not just financial leverage, but now because they're now two leaders of the country's actual political leverage over Donald Trump. So I think Trump is worried that the revelations of these financial arrangements will be harmful to Donald Trump. And also, I think he worries that, no kidding, Putin's people could actually call the loans, and that could wipe out Donald Trump and the Trump Organization financially. I think people need to remember that long before Donald Trump was a politician, even long before he was a reality star, he was associated with sort of wealth. His brand was the rich guy. Not wealth, but you know, associated with wealth. Yes. <laughs> exactly. He, in fact, was wealthy. Well, that's the thing, which is, I mean, he's an actor. He, he acted as the wealthy man. He was sort of like the cartoon, you know, Richie Rich. He kind of, he wanted to be portrayed as the guy with the airplane and the gold-plated chandelier and the person who was sort of the quintessential billionaire. He thought that that would give him a lot of stature. And when you have someone who could actually wipe that out and actually reveal publicly that you are not as wealthy as you think and actually take out some of your wealth, then, you know, you sort of live in fear of those people. I also think it's possible that just over time, because there were so many relationships between Trump and Russians, that it's possible that their efforts to manipulate his thinking, you know, whether that has had an effect over time. And through osmosis, he's kind of adopted the Russian line. In effect, Preet, he is doing the work of the KGB. Now, that's not to say that he works for the KGB. It's not to say that he is kind of a winning asset of the KGB successor organizations. But in effect, he is doing their bidding. So I want to talk about this meeting that Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump had, that was about two hours or more than two hours, where there was nobody except interpreters for both sides. And there was no uh, chief of staff, there was no press person, there was no staff member on the American side. Do you have a theory about what was discussed there? I know it's speculation, yeah. but you know you seem, to, you seem to have theories. So. Yeah. So in my experience, and I think probably in your experience as well, having looked at activity where you're trying to define the motive what would cause someone to clear the room? I kind of harken back to the Oval Office event where Trump wanted to have a chat with Jim Comey. Right. You clear the room you're gonna, the when room. you're going to say something that exactly. you know maybe doesn't put you in a good light. Right, where you don't want any other witnesses or you don't want any other people to hear. So I, I kind of go into the this analysis and the assumption that there were things that Donald Trump wanted said that he didn't think he wanted anybody else to hear. Now, before I unpack that a little bit, What's an alternative? An alternative is that he has such a large ego that he thought to himself, I can do this better than anybody else. I don't really need anybody. Pompeo and John Kelly. And, right. and I can charm Putin. Yeah. I can look into his eyes like prior presidents have said that they did. Right. And I will bond with him and all will be well. Right, exactly. And that I want to have a better relationship with him and the best way to do it is in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Now, in my experience, having kind of set up many meetings of senior government officials, bilateral meetings, there is a, a role for kind of a one-on-one -on -one private meeting. But let me tell you how I've seen it work. Occasionally, you'll have sort of the senior principal, you know, the, either a president or a cabinet secretary, spend a little time one-on-one -on -one with the person, sometimes a little warm-up, get to know you, or, you know, occasionally a foreign leader will want to raise something like, um, something very personal, like, I'm going to be leaving this job in six months. And, you know, I want you to know that my successor is either a, you know, a great guy or B, someone you can't trust. I mean, there's some things you don't want 
written down as part of the official record. Um, and, and that's perfectly normal and appropriate and not nefarious. Totally. And I've also seen, for example, sometimes where you set up a one-on-one conversation as the two are walking through a touring a facility or touring a historical event. So they can kind of have a little personal time and they can have conversation along the lines of, you know, what got you interested in this? What do you care about? You know, what's, how's your family? What's, what's motivating you? But I've, I've never seen, and I think it's suspicious, where the main event in a senior bilateral meeting between two leaders, particularly one with an adversary nation, is a one-on-one meeting. And that's why I come back to the issue, which is what is it that Donald Trump didn't want others to hear about? And so, you know, I'm concerned. I have to say this is not based on anything other than just deep concern as a patriotic American who's worked in national security, that part of the discussion was something along the following, and this I'm speculating here, which is, are you going to put this above 2%? Because you like the 2%. <laughs> um, I'll put this above 2%. Is that the kind of milk you drink? Uh, yeah, it, it is. But I, I don't know exactly how high to, to rate this. Okay. But it was something along the lines of the following, which is, Vladimir, I want to have a better relationship with you. I've known you and the people around you for many, many years. We've done good business together. We've had good relationships. But there are a lot of forces in my country that don't want me to have a good relationship with you. But I got to tell you, you know, because of all these issues about what happened during the election, that's given my enemies kind of at home and the fake news media, et cetera, reason to doubt me. But I don't think they're right about what they say you did. And I just want to ask you, what do you have on me? <laughs> is there anything that you have on me that is that I should know about? And I know that sounds like kind of an abrupt screeching halt to an otherwise normal part of a conversation. It sounds kind of crazy, yeah. Jeremy, I will tell you. It, it does. But I've talked to several senior, former senior officials who and I didn't actually get this idea myself. A few people who I trust gave me this notion that, in essence, the way Trump would approach it wouldn't be, you know, I want to do these deals with you and here's all the deals and kind of come in with a big agenda. It's more an effort to show Putin that you have my attention and I need to know and I need to understand what it is that I'm facing when I'm dealing with you in the future. This seems like a weak way to address that issue. It does. Of, um someone else having some leverage over you? And will you further theorize as to what a smart guy like Putin would have said? I I assume, predicting what you might say, is that Putin wants to keep that vague, but would want to in this, again, very hypothetical scenario that you have suggested, want Trump to be worried, but be unspecific because that increases worry, doesn't it? Yes, and I think, again, theorizing, Putin would probably lean towards not addressing it. Trump has sort of a directness about him in case you've missed this. Um, and yeah, He does? Yes. And, and in some sense, I think some people believe that that's part of his appeal to a certain part of the electorate that, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't just kind of sand off the edges of conversations. He doesn't sort of engage in niceties. It's pretty direct. So it's not a lot of subtlety. Exactly. So I can kind of see him kind of slamming in there and saying, you know, I got this problem in my hands. I need you to help me solve it, but I can't solve it right. until you tell me what you got on me. Whereas Putin, I see as the opposite, as having all the subtlety and understanding all the diplomatic nuance and all the ways to manipulate a conversation. So I, I presume what he would say is, you know, I assure you, I can see no reason why I would ever bring up those things that happened in the past. And so let's talk about the future, because I'm sure that if our futures are bound together, there'll be no reason to ever come and address things from the past. But Putin also, and this seems clear from some of the subsequent conversations and disclosures made by the Russian side, made some asks, talked about questioning Bill Browder and Michael McFaul. Do you have concerns about other asks that were made that have not been revealed yet? Yeah. So, I mean, let's, let's unpack exactly what the overall dynamic of the summit was, which was, in essence, as far as we know, 
Trump went into the summit with no agenda other than to, quote, have a better relationship. I mean, that's what he said publicly in his interviews. So we went in, President Trump went in with a very weak stance. It was basically just to have a meeting to have a meeting, a relationship, and maybe to ask some of these questions that I that I referenced about what Putin might have on Trump. Whereas on the Russian side, they clearly had an agenda. They clearly had specific things that they wanted to discuss. They wanted to discuss Syria. They wanted to discuss Crimea. They wanted to discuss the issue of, of the Magnitsky Act and sanctions on Russia. And in conjunction with Magnitsky Act, they clearly wanted to ask about the idea of undercutting the claims of Bill Browder and Michael McFaul and others. And the way Putin prepared for the meeting by anticipating that Trump would raise the election hacking issue, even though he probably did it in the most weak way possible, Putin was ready with this jujitsu move of proposing a, quote, cybersecurity investigation on both sides, which Trump described in the press conference as, quote, an incredible offer. When, of course, you know, asking for a uh, cybersecurity working group with the Russians is kind of like asking ISIS to do a working group on beheadings. It makes no sense from the perspective of U.S., policy objectives to work with Russia on cybersecurity. So I do think that the whole Helsinki summit was incredibly lopsided. Putin had a specific agenda. Trump did not. Putin had certain things he wanted to say were outcomes of the summit. Trump did not. And one of the main issues that I think will be discussed in the future also will be arms control. So I think the Russians have a strong interest in extending some of the arms control agreements under New START. And it's unclear yet what the U.S. policy position is on nuclear weapons and arms control. I want to ask you another question. Last question on this meeting, the private meeting between the president of our country and Vladimir Putin. Do you have any doubt, given your deep experience in intel work, do you have any doubt that the Russians, at least, have both a recording and a transcript of that meeting? I do have some doubt. I don't know for certain whether they would have the ability to or the need to record it. Couldn't the, their interpreter or, or Putin himself just have worn, recorded, worn, worn a wire? Worn a wire, yeah. I'm guessing they weren't being checked. Yes, I suppose that that's a possibility, but my mind would have to go to a very dark place in order to conclude that they would record it in order to hold that over Donald Trump in the future. And I'm just... Uh, You're not prepared to go that dark I'm not with prepared Vladimir to go Putin? That dark. I'm not prepared to go that dark just yet, but... They go polonium, but they don't go recording? <laughs> I think it's possible, Preet, but... But you put it over 2%. Around 2%. Okay. I'll yeah. put it at 96%. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it's possible some other nation's intelligence agency sought to and succeeded in recording that conversation? I think several nation's intelligence agencies sought to understand what happened in the meeting, and they could have done it through technical means, they could have done it through human sources, they could have done it through a wide variety of means. I think, for example, many intelligence agencies probably have Donald Trump's personal phone tapped. And I think to the extent that he's communicating with anybody about what happened during the meeting on his phone, that that's in the hands of foreign intelligence services. That's comforting. So what's the likelihood then we're dealing lots of likelihoods on yeah. the show. Not, don't you have this many predictions? Yeah. What's the likelihood that we will come to understand pretty thoroughly or not what happened in that meeting? I think ultimately? it's I think it's a low likelihood, honestly. I, I think actually Trump doesn't retain a lot of information and detail about policy. And I think it's possible that Putin was talking in a lot of specificity about ideas and concepts, and Trump was just sort of thinking this was a you know a bonding time. I'm not even sure. I know this sounds weird in saying, I'm not even sure that Donald Trump knows what happened in that meeting. 
for the most <laughs> okay. part. And I mean, and he was there. He was. I, I know, but but I think, I think he wanted to be able to signal to Vladimir Putin, you know, we're going to work together and we're going to be. Yeah, I mean, pals. For, for, for Trump, it's often, it's about signaling and it's about impressionism, and the flavor, and sentiment, as opposed to particular hard concrete things. Even though he's supposed to be the master of the deal, it seems to be all wrapped up in an aura of deal making as opposed to actual deal terms. That's right. And and I would actually even go one step further, which is when Trump describes what's going to happen at a summit, he often says, I'm going to do well, or I did well, as if he was the contestant in the Miss Universe pageant, strutting around and and being observed and being judged, as opposed to really any substance of diplomacy. I was talking to someone smart like you, formerly in the intelligence community recently, and the question we were discussing, and I want to put the question to you, is how do you explain to an average person in the United States who has to deal with you know, lower wages and healthcare and education burdens and all, all sorts of things that you, you deal with as a, as a busy working person in America, why they should care about Vladimir Putin and what he does? I mean, in the old days during the Cold War, you know, a lot of this back and forth and the antagonism was understood to be based on the fact that the Russians or the Soviet Union was really trying to export communism to the United States and undermine our way of life in that very particular way. No capitalism, communism, no democracy, communism. That's not part of the rhetoric in the adversarial nature of relations between our countries now. So in the absence of that, how do you explain in the clearest way that you can why they should be concerned? I think all Americans need to trust their government and need to know that their government is being candid and forthright and truthful about their objectives. I also think the first role of government is to protect the country. So I think in both of those realms, taking a tough line on Russia is in the interests of all the American people. Now, the problem that we have with Trump's approach towards Russia is twofold. Number one is it's clear he's not being forthright and candid about the true nature of the relationship that the Trump organization has had with the Russian Federation. And also, he's doing things to advance American foreign policy objectives that are manifestly against our interests, like undermining NATO. Now, to get back to your question, Preet, about why should an American care, I think all American families do care whether or not America is going to be a leader in the world, going to be strong, going to have strong alliances, going to protect our interests, whether it's because it's to protect our economic interests around the world or to protect our national security interests. And they also want to know that the attributes of the highest office of the land are those of truth and justice, and, and they don't want to have a secret agenda, a secret deal emanating from the Oval Office. And you know, overall, I think my concern about the Helsinki summit and the follow-on summit is that it's clear that Donald Trump has entered into a secret deal with Vladimir Putin, a secret deal to reshape American foreign policy in the image of Putin and Russia's theories about international relations. So President Trump has this meeting with Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. And then I think two days later, it becomes known that he's invited Putin to come to another meeting in D.C. And I believe last week you were at a conference, were you not? Yes. Which conference was that? That was the Aspen Security Forum in and Aspen, it, Colorado. And at the Aspen Security Conference, there is a uh, now much watched interview that was occurring in real time with Andrea Mitchell and the head of the DNI, Dan Coates, 
Were you present for that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so what happened and what was your reaction? So Andrea Mitchell was interviewing Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence. Of course, Dan Coats is a former Republican senator from Indiana, has a long record of public service, and uh, and was appointed by President Trump and confirmed by the Senate as DNI. DNI is what? Again, the director what? of national intelligence, overseeing the 16 intelligence agencies and the office of the director of national intelligence. And Dan Coates was being interviewed by Andrea Mitchell. And I was sitting there pre in the room in the audience, about 25 feet in front of the stage. So just uh, just looking directly at Coates and Andrea Mitchell. You couldn't get a front row seat? I couldn't, no. Okay. Uh, right. I wasn't a heavy hitter enough of a sponsor. But I will tell you that Coates was not looking for a way to stick it to Donald Trump. In fact, the first question Andrea asked him was, Director Coates, earlier in the week, you put out a statement clarifying that, in fact, the intelligence assessment that said that Putin directed an interference campaign to benefit Donald Trump, that the intelligence community stood by that assessment. Why did you do that? And Dan Coates, the first line he said was, I was doing my job. And he basically, in a very humble, straightforward, candid, and not not a way full of bullshit was basically <laughs> saying... The job of the intelligence professional, without fear or favor, and oftentimes having to speak truth to power, partisan consequences, you know, be damned, is to call it like we see it, is to say, if Russia directed an attack on our country and did it to favor Donald Trump, we have to say that. And most often we say it in private channels. Most often we say it in our classified intelligence assessments. But when those intelligence assessments have been made public, and there's been great public discourse about it, and someone is trying to twist that intelligence assessment for their own political gain, we do view it as a responsibility of the intelligence leadership of our country to stand up and say no, and to stand up for the men and women in the intelligence community. So he started good. So he, started, he started very well, and then he said, he said, but Andrew, I think it's time now to move on. And he basically said, I don't really want to dwell on this. I don't want the whole interview to be about this because I did my job. Let's move on. But then there was breaking news. Yes. So for the rest of the interview, I would say Dan Coates was trying to focus on other issues. He was not trying to amp up the pressure on Trump. He was not, as some people have been said, trying to get fired or trying to stick it to him. It was a very, in my view, fair, respectful way to handle a a very delicate and dicey situation. Well, at some point later in the interview, about 40 minutes in, Haley Talbot, who is the producer for Andrew Mitchell Reports, scribbled a note on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and, and tried to step over people in the audience and wander her way up to the right side of the stage. And she walked up to the stage while Coates was giving an answer about whatever it may have been and handed this note to Andrea. And Andrea said, we have breaking news. And now everyone has seen the, the tape at this moment, you know, that on Twitter, we have learned that President Trump has invited Vladimir Putin to Washington. And at first, I think actually Coates didn't really even hear what she was saying because there was such an audible gasp in the room. And by the time she finished the description of what the tweet said, you know, people were muttering among themselves. And so he kind of amped it up a little bit and say, say that again. Say that again. Yeah, he said, say (laughs) that again. And then he said, well, that's going to be special. Um, Which Which sounded like he was being critical of it. A, because maybe it's not a good idea, and B, maybe he should have known about it. Right, exactly. And so I don't think he was attempting to be critical, and I certainly don't think he was trying to be disrespectful in any way. But 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 here's here's the broader point, which is inviting a Russian leader to Washington for a second summit, especially so soon after the first one, that's a fairly significant foreign policy decision. You would think that there would be a process inside the government to recommend to the president whether he'd do that or not. And certainly at that table of principals, cabinet secretaries, senior officials, 
from all the departments and agencies who have an equity there, you would have the director of national intelligence. And so what that moment revealed was that Director Coates not only wasn't debriefed about what had happened in Helsinki, but that he was not consulted at all, not just about this particular invitation, but about what to do, generally speaking, with regards to follow on the summit. And so we have sort of a president who is conducting foreign policy without the benefit of his professionals, certainly without the benefit of his intelligence community, and therefore without the benefit of facts. That's incredibly dangerous. And and moreover, Preet, I just want to say that the director of national intelligence is the one person in our government from whom no secrets are kept. Right. And so if the president is conducting secret diplomacy with Vladimir Putin, and he doesn't even tell his own director of national intelligence, by definition, this is a secret deal that Donald Trump has cut with Vladimir Putin. So that's a powerful response and a powerful analysis. But what, what does it say to you that people like Dan Coats, it appears, and other folks who are not in the loop, who are supposed to be in the loop, who are supposed to provide recommendations and guidance and counsel, are being ignored, what does it tell you that they remain in government, that they don't resign? This question about the role of senior people inside the Trump administration and whether or not they ought to hang in there, stay in their jobs, whether or not they ought to resign, um, has been one that's been asked really since the beginning of the administration from the very first moments that patriots like Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, and even people like John Kelly, who I knew very well when he was a Marine Four Star, uh, when they joined the administration. And here's my view, Preet, which is that if you look at General Joe Dumford, a four-star Marine who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, if you look at Jim Mattis, who's a retired Marine four-star who's now Secretary of Defense, if you look at John Kelly, retired Marine four-star who's now Chief of Staff of the White House, they have, I think, a, an understanding among themselves that their job is to protect the country from the gravest national security threats facing our nation. And they believe, though they probably wouldn't ever say it publicly, they believe that one of the gravest national security threats facing our country is a president who is not informed and who does not have good instincts on national security and who may not always be acting in a manner that's in the best interest of our nation. And so in essence, they have agreed among themselves and others as well that the best highest use of their time, even though it may come at cost to their personal reputations, is to stay in government and to prevent the president from doing grave harm to our country. So they're there, and that's an extraordinary thing to say, they're there to protect America from the elected president. From decisions of the elected president that would harm our country. One thing that I mentioned in the list of items to discuss with you, we can't get to all of it, was the news last week that the special counsel, Bob Mueller, unsealed an indictment against 12 military intelligence officials in Russia, accusing them with great, in great detail and specificity of various crimes against the United States, including hacking the DNC and the DCCC and various other folks. Did you have an immediate reaction to that? Yeah, I thought it was expected in the sense that the earlier Mueller indictment from earlier this year focused on the Internet Research Agency and those individuals in the Russian Federation who had been involved in the social media campaign, which was also likewise very detailed, very troubling. I mean, people need to read these indictments. For example, in the earlier Mueller indictment, there was this line about the Russians organizing a coal miners for Trump rally in Pennsylvania. I mean, just think about that for a second. This wasn't just things on Facebook. There were actual physical rallies that were organized by Russian agents. 
So that's in the earlier Mueller indictment. And then likewise with the new indictment of 12 GRU, military intelligence officials, it helped round out the story because it, number one, it made clear that the officials who were responsible for this activity were Russian government officials. Second is that they were leadership of the Russian intelligence agency that's associated with the hacking operation. And third, there were some phenomenal detail in the in the indictment. For example, the fact that on July 27th, 2016, Donald Trump stood up after there had been the hacking of the DNC and he said, Russia, if you're listening, please hack into Hillary Clinton's personal email server. And then as the indictment lays out, after hours for the first time, those are words from the indictment, after hours for the first time, the Russian GRU began a hacking operation of Hillary Clinton's personal email domain. Of course, you could think that that's a total coincidence, or it's clear that there is a actual connection between Donald Trump's call to do this and the action and reaction from the Russian government. Likely of a coincidence, less than 2%. Less than 2%. Less than 2%. Yes. <laughs> but there's a couple of things going on here. You know, as you said, I think at the outset, you and I got to know each other even better and met and spoke mm-hmm. on a regular basis, as I discussed with Leon Panetta as well. In 2010, we were taking down the 10 Russian spy ring in New York and we had a detailed complaint, criminal complaint. And so one purpose of a complaint uh, or an indictment is to lay out the allegations sufficient for a grand jury to find you know, probable cause and also to give some notice that's required by law to the people that you're prosecuting and make sure you cite to all the proper statutory provisions. But another purpose sometimes in these contexts is to send a message to the adversary. And that was part of what was going on in 2010, not the most important thing, but a part of it. To what extent do you think in this charging document, this indictment against the 12 GRU people, was there a message being sent to Russian intelligence? And if so, what was that message? I think the message is is that we have you penetrated, that we have been able to collect on your tactics, techniques, and procedures, that we know exactly what you did two summers ago, and that we are going to lay out in precise detail for all the world to see the way you attack American democracy and the way you attack other democracies. And by the way, I should say, I don't like to use the word meddling because meddling is something that's annoying, something your mother-in-law does, it's something an officious My mother-in-law neighbor. never <laughs> meddles. The right word is attack. Russia attacked our country. They didn't meddle in anything. But you referenced pre the 2010 roll-up of the Russian illegals that you were, when you were serving as U.S. attorney, were intimately involved with. And you and I did work quite a bit on that matter. That was uh, dubbed ghost stories by the FBI. That was the code name for that operation. A couple of interesting kind of contemporary points about that. First, when the Russian intelligence services went to assassinate Skripal on the streets of the U.K., a lot of people don't realize, but Skripal was one of the individuals who was traded. we got free trading him for the Russian illegals that we arrested inside the United States. And so, you know, one of the reasons why that action by the Russian Federation was so morally offensive, almost above all else, to the U.S. intelligence community, and it's so recent, is because it was done, in effect, in a fair trade. And to go after someone who they traded away really kind of violates every single code. There truly is no honor among thieves. But second is that the individual who, early in his career, directed operations for the illegals program. He was a line N officer in the KGB supporting Russian illegal programs globally was Vladimir Putin. That was his job in the KGB. So for him, these illegal programs were very significant. 
And third, very interestingly, is who was the individual who ran the ghost stories investigation? Who knows the Russia file better than most? Who's the person who played a central role in wrapping up the Russian illegal activities and really sticking it to Vladimir Putin at the time? Bob Mueller. All true. Mm-hmm. When an indictment with this specificity is unsealed, further what you were saying a second ago, and folks in Russia, in the intelligence agencies, and specifically the GRU, see how much we have, and must know that there's even more we have that we didn't even put in, and we didn't declassify. Do people get fired? What's the reaction there? There may be some retribution inside the Russian Federation, but I'll tell you, after the Russian illegals were wrapped up in 2010, Mikhail Fradkov, who was the director of the SVR, the successor to the KGB, he did not get fired. And I got to believe... Wasn't that surprising? I mean, it was surprising, it was surprising to me. Right? It was. And I got to believe, Preet, that there's a lot of spin and just kind of cover up inside the Russian Federation. And everyone was blaming somebody else and making excuses. And there's no real reckoning. There's no real accountability inside their intelligence services, which is obviously something that makes them incredibly weak. So one of the reasons I'm happy to have you here is that there's lots of people in the country asking a lot of questions about how intelligence works, but sometimes we don't go to basics. So let me ask you some questions about classified information. Mm -hmm. That has been in the news a lot for a long time mm -hmm. with respect to Hillary Clinton and other folks. How many levels of classification are there? Well, there are three main categories of classified information. There's secret information, there's top secret information, and then there's what's called SCI or sensitive compartmented information, the highest level of classification. And is most classified information in one of those categories? Well, the vast majority of the U.S. government's information that's classified is, of course, the lowest level, that's secret. But when you're talking about the intelligence community, you're talking about CIA or you're talking about NSA, most all of that information is at actually the highest level, SCI. And then even within SCI, there are particular programs that are only known to certain folks on a need-to-know basis. That's right. So just because you have even that clearance, SCI, which you know I used to have, you mm -hmm. used to have, it doesn't mean you have access to everything. That's right. The C in SCI is compartmented. It means there are various compartments within that category. One compartment may be uh, information related to signals intelligence. One compartment may be information related to covert action. One compartment may be related to human intelligence collection. And depending on your job, you have to have both access to those compartments and a need to know that information in order to be granted that clearance and that access. Yeah, I mean, because I, I, I don't think this is clear to people because it gets elided a lot. Mm -hmm. you know, when I was a U.S. attorney, lots of people had secret, top secret, and SCI. But there were sometimes occasions where you only had two people in the entire office who had details about something. I'm sure the same was true in the CIA and at the DOD. That's right. And when you're talking about the intelligence community doing work against Russia, for example, much of the work there is going to be held in a very strict compartment within SCI because, of course, some of the information derived could be from the most sensitive sources, including potentially human sources. And so you want to limit the number of people who know about that, obviously, if that secret's out there. We've had, had penetrations by the Russian intelligence services of our own intelligence community, like people like Ames and Hansen and others. When those sources become known, those sources can actually have their lives in danger and become killed. I mean, Tolkachev, who was the, one of the most productive uh, spies for the United States government, he was, a, he was a Soviet scientist, you know, he was added by Ames and ultimately he was killed. How does something come to be classified? So 
the basic practice of an intelligence professional is that whenever they generate work product, a cable or an email, or even believe it or not, you know, hey, do you guys want to go to lunch? An email to, to office colleagues, that actually will probably have a classification on it. Presumptively. Yep, it does. does and that- in fact, when you generate emails inside the intelligence community, you have there's a kind of a drop-down menu where you have to select which classification it is. And I think most people set their default to top secret. Right. Does that not result in overclassification? This is one of the downsides of our system is that there's huge punishment for not classifying something that should be classified or treating something as unclassified that is classified, but there's zero punishment if you overclassify things. And overclassification has its own costs. There are actually literally costs of handling classified information, computer systems and security clearances and polygraphs and all the rest. But there's also costs in that if everything is classified, nothing is classified. Meaning if you treat everything as super secret, then in effect the specialness of a secret gets watered down and it's not treated with enough sensitivity and care as it needs to be. So with respect to the criminal indictment against the 12 GRU Russian agents. There's a lot of stuff in that that's now public, but at once upon a time you believe was classified, mm-hmm. right? So how does that process work? I mean, we dealt with it all the time, but explain quickly how it can be that something is highly, highly classified, then makes its way not only you know to a lower level of classification, but in fact, a completely publicly disseminated document. Yeah. So for for any classified information that needs to be in a sense, declassified, revealed publicly for a governmental purpose, for example, for a criminal indictment. There's a process that goes on, and and it's up to the Justice Department, principally the National Security Division, that would bring the stakeholders, people who own that classified information around the table and say, look, you know, the special counsel wants to go public with this information, and there's probably a dialogue, and they probably yeah, redline. Sometimes it's a fight. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's, 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 a, it's a knife fight, and they probably, you know, they're redlining and exchanging red lines of documents back and forth, and finally, ultimately, the leadership of, say, CIA or NSA has to be comfortable with the fact that DOJ is going to be revealing publicly this information. And so what does that tell us about what happened here? It tells us that the intelligence community felt strong enough about the importance of calling out publicly what the GRU had done, that they were willing to risk their own sources and methods to some extent and allowing Bob Mueller to state that publicly. And you could view it through one lens of the sort of the more political lens, which is they went off the Trump reservation and they decided to kind of stick it to Donald Trump and they did it notwithstanding the fact that it would harm him politically. But I think, honestly, intelligence community leadership don't view it through that lens. They view it as sort of what's best for the country and what's the right thing to do. And they thought, and they believed, and I think this is the right decision, that in order to protect the national security interests of the United States on a non-political, non-partisan basis, this information had to be included in a bona fide criminal indictment. Yeah, and you and I both know that generally speaking, the intelligence community and whatever particular intelligence agency owns the information does not part with it lightly. Absolutely. That there have been cases, you know, this case was one in which they thought it was important for the reasons you suggest, but there have been other cases that you and I both know about where literally intelligence officials had been prepared to let a bad guy go free Yes. rather than reveal methods and sources. And it makes us kind of annoyed when that happens, but it's understandable. No, that's right. In fact, defendants in criminal cases who have been accused of, say, espionage sometimes use what's called gray mail, in which they basically say to the government, if you put me on trial, I'm going to reveal all these secrets. It's not exactly blackmail, but it's sort of a form of blackmail. And the government would rather, as you noted, not prosecute somebody because they don't want their secrets to be revealed publicly. I want to ask about spy recruitment. Yeah. How does that work? When the Russians want to recruit someone to spy on their behalf, 
Does that happen in a day? Does it happen in a month? Is it a long-term thing? What goes into that? Well, human intelligence collection, whether it's being done by the United States or by other countries, is some of the hardest work done by any government. And it's some of the most difficult and sensitive work. Again, I was not a uh, operations officer at CIA, but I worked alongside many. I think they would say that this is this is not the work done in a day, a week, or even sometimes a year. That this is a, a long-term effort to spot, assess, recruit, and handle individuals who have access to information that you need for your national security. So for example, if the United States were undertaking this activity, we would try to analyze who in an adversary nation, or let's just take a terrorist organization as an example, who, number one, actually has access to the information we want. It has to be useful. Right, it has to be useful. What would motivate that person to work with us? And motivate that person to basically to engage in treason. Exactly, to engage in treason and risk their own life and also do something that, you know, heretofore their own clan or own society has deemed immoral. And, you know, sometimes money is a motivation. Sometimes they actually have lost faith in their organization and they actually believe in what we're doing. Sometimes they have some other aspect of their life where they are looking for an exit and they, you know, want to be kind of going to, in effect, a witness protection program and, and work with us because they think we can protect them. Sometimes um, blackmail too. I would say that, in general, the United States does not use that tactic, but other countries might. Right. So, in other words, the Russians might, this word that people keep using a lot, compromise. Yeah. The idea being that if they have embarrassing information about someone, that might be the lever that you can press to get that person to turn to your side. Yes, that's right. And then once, once you obviously have developed a relationship in effect, a contract with that individual where they're going to work for you, you know, you're the CIA and that human source is going to work for you. Then the real challenge is how do you handle that person, meet with them, communicate with that person if the counterintelligence service of the other country is is keeping close tabs on them? And what do you think is going on with Carter Page? I don't know exactly. Um, the documents that were released about Carter Page, I think, in, in some important ways, undercut the claims that were made by Devin Nunes and other Republicans on Capitol Hill that somehow the FISA application, the application to listen to his communications was unwarranted, it was weak. No, in fact, what we've learned is that it was very lengthy, very substantive, it was not predicated on the Steele dossier, and that it was signed off on multiple times by at least four judges who were appointed by Republican presidents. So this was no partisan hit job on Carter Page. And by the way, the Carter Page issue and the FISA on Carter Page was an important counterintelligence investigation in itself. But even if you think that Carter Page should not have been surveilled by the U.S. government, even if you somehow conclude that and four judges conclude that he should be surveilled, that doesn't mean that the intelligence community's assessment of Vladimir Putin attacked the United States in order to benefit Donald Trump, that somehow that assessment is undermined. Have you ever been an asset of the Russian Federation? No. Okay. On that note, Jeremy Bash, thanks. Thank, I hope you're not offended by that question. I'm not at I all. I just had to ask it. Absolutely. It's okay. a fair question. Look, you denied it. So, yeah. Okay. You <laughs> strenuously denied it. Jeremy Bash, thank thanks you so much for making the time. So this is the point of the show where I talk about something in the news that struck me, or that hit me in a particular way. And this week, there's a story about one of the two principal uh, tabloids in New York City. One is the New York Post, and the other that I'm referring to is the Daily News, which I have read every day for many years, and a lot of people rely on it as a source of, of news and commentary and various other things, and I have great respect for the Daily News. And they apparently have cut their staff by half 
and that's a further cut from prior years. They have come down something like 80 or 90% in the number of reporters they've had from their heyday. And so lots of people are lamenting that. I have a particular lament based on my own experience, which maybe people don't fully appreciate. And that is when you lose local coverage, you also lose a great check on local government. Scandals are less likely to come forward. Corrupt politicians are less likely to be exposed. Prosecutors can do a lot, but they can't do everything. And you know, a little fairly well-kept secret is that some of the best cases and most important and impactful cases that prosecutors bring didn't start in the mind of a prosecutor or in the mind of an FBI agent. They arose from the writings of an intrepid investigative reporter like someone at the Daily News. And my own experience has you know, a huge, shining example of that. A few years ago, I was reading some columns by the very great Juan Gonzalez, who was a Daily News columnist, who was noting that a particular contract was getting out of hand. It was for a, you know payroll software that the city had contracted with a company called SAIC to do. And the price had gone from like $60 million to $80 million, ultimately ended up being a $500 million totally fraudulent fiasco. There were kickbacks, there were bribes. And the only reason we began that investigation was because I read the story and I gave the column to my chief of corruption at the time, Dan Stein, and they ran with it. You know, and at the end of the day, because of our investigation, a number of people went to prison because they deserved to. And the company made the city whole. I gave a $500 million check to Mike Bloomberg, who was mayor of New York at the time. And the New Yorkers ended up losing not one penny because of that fraud. And all that began because of an intrepid investigative journalist at the Daily News. You know, so when you read these stories about people being laid off from local papers, you feel bad for them. But it's not just about people losing their job. It's about country and communities losing something too. And in a time when we're worried about corruption and overreaching power, the press is a very important check on that. And the less of it there is, the less check you have. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Jeremy Bash. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, Jake McAbee, and Vinay Basti. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.